San Francisco in the middle 60s was a very special time and place to be a part of. But no explanation, no mix of words or music or memories can touch that sense of knowing that you were there and alive in that corner of time in the world, whatever it meant. There was madness in any direction. At any hour, you could strike sparks anywhere. There was a fantastic universal sense that whatever we were doing was right, that we were winning. And that, I think, was the handle. That sense of inevitable victory over the forces of old and evil. Not in any mean or military sense. We didn't need that. Our energy would simply prevail. We had all the momentum. We were riding the crest of a high and beautiful wave. So now, less than five years later, you can go up on a steep hill in Las Vegas and look west. And with the right kind of eyes, you can almost see the high watermark. That place where the wave finally broke and rolled back. everybody and welcome to Generation Lost, the show about movies on the podcasting streamings. And I'm Bryn. <laughs> and that's Jeremy. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> on the podcasting streamings, just that's where right. we like to be. You know, where you get all of the podcasts. You, where they, you find, where you find your radio the, shows in the 21st century, that's the right. podcasting streamings. They come down the stream and you catch them. <laughs> With it's an, like one of those sushi net. places with the conveyor belt. <laughs> yeah. But <laughs> and each time one walks, each time one of them comes past and you look at it and you go like, hmm, hmm. maybe I would like a little bit of struggle session. You, you take know? it off the little conveyor belt and then yeah. another one comes by and you're like, hmm, the uh, Antifada episode where they talk about that person on Twitter for the whole episode. <laughs> hmm, we are pretty far from the water right now, aren't we? <laughs> maybe I'll let that one pass. And you know, this is Oklahoma. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe where don't. are they getting this from <laughs> <laughs> yeah love sean love rob love jamie no beef here <laughs> i have absolutely no idea about it i just saw it and the person uh the the person who this kerfuffle is all about like follows me or something and it's, so it's, like, it's rob it's my friend rob from dumb and awful they were at the uh, uh pod damn america live show okay yeah they're a big, well, tall worker. <laughs> all right, not a uh, not, not a not a Harvard white girl, girl who goes yeah. to Harvard or he's whatever. Like a, I I don't know if he's a stand up, but I think he's a stand up. Oh, maybe. Who yeah. knows? Who knows anymore? Who knows? There's it's so all the many stand ups. Who could possibly know all the stand ups? Why would you want to? Why would you want to? You you'll never do anything with the information. <laughs> but anyway, we're not here to talk about. Twitter drama because no. we don't That's give a shit. That's for the bonus. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's not true. We are huge gossips, but you're not going to do that on this episode. We're going to talk about what we watched this week. And on this week's episode, what did you watch this week? <laughs> <laughs> well, Bryn, uh, I yeah? watched two, th two things. We'll see if we can get to both of them. Um, I watched 
the Netflix miniseries, uh, The Queen's Gambit. Oh, the one about the chess girl. The chess girl, yes. Um, fascinating show. Um, yeah, it looks cool. It's okay. It's, uh, in terms of like what makes it uh, entertaining, it's, it's entertaining enough that I you know was engaged and I watched the whole thing. I didn't turn it off. It's not like Emily in Paris where like you watch two seconds of it and you're like, no, never. <laughs> what is that? That was a Netflix show that premiered like a couple of weeks before it that uh, was like a really goofy, zany comedy about a, a girl from Chicago who moves to Paris and all of the like fun cultural clashes that happen. Fun cultural classes of just Awful. meeting asshole French people. Exactly. <laughs> and and it's like, imagine if you play out that joke for five episodes Yikes. and that's it. Yeah. That sounds um, like very bad. So this is not zany at all. This has kind of like the, the stink of prestige TV all over it. Oh, yeah. Um, so it definitely like, it at times definitely is like a, a bit much in that regard. Uh-huh. Um in terms of like how seriously it takes so many of the concepts of what is ultimately a, you know, a kid playing a game. Um, (laughs) Yeah. It, it, it kind of reminded me in, in looks of um, a beautiful mind. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Uh, Yes. And it's a similar thing. Um, So the story of it is it's a little girl who's an orphan in like the fifties. And uh, she uh, learns to play chess from a janitor at her orphanage. Mm-hmm. Um, so they have sort of like a parent-child sort of relationship. He's teaching her how to play chess and, and so on and so forth. And um, it turns out she's a genius. She's like a, she's like a little <laughs> chess a little, genius. She's a little goodwill hunting. Sort of, yeah. It's like, it's a little less like magical in a way where like, like it definitely, there is some element of like, you know, magical brain stuff where it's like, like, look at this beautiful mind. She's such a genius for the <laughs> chess. But there's also an element of like, they, they do go pretty far out of their way to be like, uh, um, you know, a lot of this has to do with the fact that she, you know, had a lot of time on her hands. She had like a lot of uh, need to entertain herself in the orphanage. She had like a lot of trauma that she was trying to like kind of make up for in in control over this thing like they definitely explore Mm -hmm. that a fair amount so it's not like you know just surprise look this orphan is good at chess um (laughs) but she's definitely better at chess than you know me you'd expect Uh, (laughs) or anyone (laughs) yeah um and so the story from there kind of is uh, she gets adopted um and uh enters a chess tournament and there's like her her adopted father leaves the family so she has to like try to find a way to support her adoptive mother uh financially mm-hmm. so she starts entering chess competitions and winning money and then she becomes this like famous chess player because she's like so young and all these like newspapers and magazines are like look at this young chess girl she's so good at chess she's beating <laughs> all the best men in the world mm-hmm. isn't that something and then the rest of it is really just about her like kind of getting better and better and becoming the best player in the world, right? Is that so, a true story? Is it a true story? So this is so this is something interesting about it is that it has this really strange, uncanny feeling the more you watch it where you're like, this has got to be based on a true story because otherwise, what the hell? <laughs> like, yeah. What is the point of a lot of this stuff? <laughs> There's a lot of stuff in it that just feels like it doesn't need to be there or it's like, you know, kind of just hanging on in weird ways that you're like, this has to be based on a true story because there's no other reason to keep this character around or whatever. But right. it's it's not. It's not based on a true story at all. It's a novel. 
Um, but that's so weird. It's like it's really strange. What if a girl was really good at chess? Is not it's really essentially a the it's essentially <laughs> the premise. Yeah, but it's like um, it's interesting. There's like a whole like drug abuse element of it where she like gets hooked on these tranquilizer pills that they give her at the orphanage. Um, oh. And it almost like doesn't really come back to haunt her ever. She just like She's loves like, the pills and keeps taking them. And then like finally, I think in the last episode or the one before it, it's like, oh, and surprise now that she's an adult, she has a problem and uh, uh-huh. she can't really play chess that good anymore. Because of the pills? Because of the pills and the drinking. She gets into drinking and partying and shit. I mean, who um, doesn't? Yeah, it's got all the elements of like a like a larger than life rock story where it's like, oh, but she got too into that partying lifestyle we all associate with professional with chess. chess. Yeah. <laughs> there's a there's a fun side character who for whatever reason never explained, never, you know, really uh-huh. elaborated on. He's the second best chess player in America uh throughout the story and he wears a like long leather duster and like a wide brimmed hat and he like looks like a like a desert <laughs> preacher character like a dusty rambler what? and he just dresses <laughs> like that but he's like a lanky nerd <laughs> and it's never talked about why he dresses like that it's never referenced <laughs> never referenced he just dresses like that cool <laughs> so one of the things i really like about it is how unflinchingly spectrumy every character is. Right. They like towards the end they kind of like they back off it a little bit with the main character. They're like let's let her be like a little more like social and 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 um you know uh cool and fun and whatever and she kind of becomes too normal as compared to the rest of the characters. Okay. But like characters like him, her other love interest, uh there's like these twins and they all are just like the, the, like they they are not afraid of making them realistically spectrum uh-huh. you know like it's 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 hard to explain exactly how they do this but it's like it's like they will put these quirks into the story and then not make them the butt of the joke for it mm-hmm. Like, yeah. it just is who this character is, and you just have to kind of adjust to the fact that all of these people talk like that. Usually right. there'll be, like, one character who, you know, is kind of quirky in that way, and then everybody else is responding to it. In this, everybody's like that. <laughs> I feel like there, there's certain things I've seen that really get at a very specific social underpinning of spaces where complete freaks exist Mm -hmm. and like it's all that you know like when you when you make friends with people at like comic book conventions or uh magic the gathering tournaments which i've never played but i've hung out with people who do like there's a specific sort of dynamic that like doesn't really exist in other kinds of like you know, in the music scene in Brooklyn, you've got mm-hmm. people of all kinds of different ages, of all kinds of different levels of like social uh, proclivities and and expertise. But with those kinds of scenarios, you have people who are entirely unable, or like it, there. There's this new normal of like it's almost like hanging out in a different country. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Where it's like all of the social cues are backwards and different. Right. Where it's yes. like, if you come in there and you're like, Hey everybody, what's up? And everyone just like looks away from you. It's, 
like, right. wait, did so I do that's something kind wrong? Of, that's how they, they do sort of like a reverse thing that you would normally do where, you know, everybody is normal except for the one person who's mm-hmm. the beautiful mind. And in this yeah. case, they do the reverse where everybody's the beautiful mind. And then the adopted mother is the kind of like fish out of water, normal person who's there trying to be like, hey, what's up? I'm here to be supportive of my daughter. And everyone's just like, what are you doing here? Please leave. (laughs) Why are you around? (laughs) Yeah, I feel Um, like I I just was thinking about what movie or like something that did that really well, but I can't remember now. Uh, But this one does it well. It does it pretty well, yeah. Uh, they kind of, like I said, they kind of cower uh, towards the end because the uh, main girl who plays, so they, they have her in like three different stages of her life, so there's like different actresses playing her, oh. but the main one who plays her for the most of it is just too conventionally TV attractive for them to like let her continue to be like socially weird. Uh-huh. Uh, so they, they definitely like puss out a couple episodes in and they're like, whatever she's, she's actually very cool. She's super normal. <laughs> <laughs> she's extremely cool. Um, and then the other thing that is really cool about it is, uh, and I guess this is probably from the source material. I didn't read the book and I probably won't, but, um, yeah, the, uh, there's an interesting tendency to continue to set up situations where you're recognizing a trope of a story about a like female protagonist in like a feminist context. Like there's all these situations where you're setting up a situation where you're like, Oh, and this is where this would happen. Okay. So for example, she gets adopted and, um, you know, she's going home with the family and the dad has this sort of like hard assness to him uh-huh. that like clearly he's like uncomfortable speaking to his wife and there's just like a weirdness there and you're like, oh, okay, something bad is going to happen to her and it's going to be the dad who who does it. It's going to be like, you know, is it going to be violence? Is it going to be sexual? What's it going to be? This is where this happens. Uh-huh. And you, you feel it in your bones and you're like, this is where this happens. And then what happens is he leaves the family <laughs> and it just turns out that he's like unhappy in his marriage and we almost never hear from him again. <laughs> and like, there's That's all so these situations weird. where they set up a trope and then don't really, they don't like subvert it necessarily. They just like set it up and then drive past it. You know what I mean? Like right. they just start driving the car and they're like, look at that, a McDonald's. Anyway, like I was saying about this NPR story we're listening to. Does that feel um, Does that feel like a letdown most of the time or does it feel like no, funnily it's really, subversive? It's kind of refreshing in a way, but it's also like it's unsettling oh. in a weird way where you just kind of like watching it the whole time and you're like, you're like, there's so many of them. There's so many times where it sets it up and then you're like, mm, nope, I guess not. There's like <laughs> a not there's a guy who she has a romantic interest in uh-huh. um, right from the beginning. And, uh, you know, they do kind of like a will they, won't they? And then like halfway through, uh, we find out that he's gay or maybe bi uh, and uh-huh. she kind of like runs off. And but he keeps coming up in conversation throughout the show Mm. and like she'll keep saying like, yeah, I'm kind of like still holding a candle for this guy and whatever. Uh, And that's why I'm never really settling down with any of these various men who are my love interest, blah, blah, blah. And uh, the whole time you're like, okay, so then, you know, he's going to come back and uh, that's where this is going to go. And then he does come back. Oh. But just to be like, hey, I'm sorry that was weird a couple of years ago when you found out I was gay, but I am actually gay and uh, <laughs> I just want to be friends with you. And she's like, great, I'd love to be friends with you. 
All right, cool. It's a really strange uh, <laughs> way of writing a story. And it's one. It's another one of those things where you're like, this has to be based on a true story because right. otherwise this is just a weird way to tell the story. <laughs> I mean, sometimes, (laughs) sometimes like novels are like that, where it like makes more sense because, because especially like quote unquote, there was some whole like discourse about literary fiction, which I don't Mm -hmm. really know what that means. But like, I feel like there's a, there's a sense in like fiction where you can't, you don't, no one even tries to do the sort of like movie plot anymore mm-hmm. like novels are something totally different now uh, which i like and i think is good um but i feel like people who are brave enough to take novels and turn them into miniseries or whatever and then stick with that that's really interesting because like there's <laughs> there's definitely stuff where it's just like shit happens and then it just continues mm-hmm. happening um i heard yeah. they made a movie of uh, i know this as much as true by wally lamb have you heard that about Mm-mm. that it's like Mark Ruffalo and it's like uh he plays himself or he plays a a brother and then a twin brother. So it's like two guys. One of them is mentally handicapped or disabled or whatever you say. Um and that book is like this huge thick book that's just about like Mark Ruffalo or the the guy like dealing with his brother and then there's like the brother just like disappears from the book for half of the book and then just like right. tragedy after tragedy happens in his life and then there's like no resolution at the end but it like makes a lot of sense what he's getting at in the book when you read it <laughs> but right. it just seems like a really hard movie to make where it's just like this guy has a terrible life and his his mentally disabled brother's life is also terrible for different mm-hmm. reasons and then it's just over <laughs> <laughs> It's like a weird, you have to like strike a balance, I guess, when you're adapting a novel, right? Because there's like the one side of this where it's like this, where you kind of meander a bit to the point where you kind of start to question, like, did you really need to put everything from the novel into this? (laughs) Did every character need to faithfully be represented here? Mm -hmm. And then there's the other side of it where like, um, I watched uh, years ago, but I still distinctly remember this feeling watching The Hunger Games. Okay. And there's a point where... Uh, Katniss, Katniss. Name, right? Katniss meets the little girl or whatever and then uh, <laughs> they're like palling around together and then the little girl dies and then Katniss like sets up a little like grave for her with like all these like flowers and stuff and it's just like it's supposed to be this like emotionally resonant moment mm-hmm. and I'm like I'm like I bet in the book it totally is because <laughs> I bet that they spent some time together. They went through some things together and whatever. But in the movie, it's like the the time between her meeting this girl and her, you know, making the little flower it's grave like is three like three minutes. So, it's, yeah. it's three minutes. Yeah, it feels like they just met that day. Um, yeah, I saw the movie. I haven't read the book, but uh, I've never read the book. But I'm sure it's better. It was extremely boring. I didn't yeah. really like that movie. Yeah, the movie um, sucks. But this sounds like a fun. So, would you recommend people watch it? Because I was thinking about I would, it. I would recommend it. It's it's a good it's a good time. It's short enough. You don't have to really like commit that much to watching it. The mm-hmm. other fun thing, and you're gonna love this, Bryn, <laughs> is um, a spoiler alert. By the way, I've mm-hmm. already spoiled most of the show for everybody. Sure. But um, uh, throughout the plot, uh, because this is taking place in the 50s and 60s, uh, there's like a Cold War backdrop Ooh. going on. Where, uh, you know, as she becomes greater at chess, she starts to get into the international scene. And part of the thing with the international scene is Soviet chess players (laughs) are the best in the world, right? Uh 
and they're setting up a sort of a situation where it's going to be like the miracle on ice. It's going to be like the USA versus the Soviets. Like we're here fighting for freedom and whatever. And, um, (laughs) she about like halfway through or so she's like, man, it's really fucked up that the Soviets are so good at this. Like it's because they're able to like, you know, pay for their chess players to like, just play chess all the time and just train on chess and they don't have to do anything else. And then the duster guy is like, no, actually that's cool. That's cool that they do that. (laughs) Yeah. It's (laughs) actually America should do that too, (laughs) because then we could just be really good at chess instead of just good at it. Yeah. And she's like, Oh, I guess you're right. And then throughout the rest, of the show all these like different government officials and like church ministers and stuff are like sponsoring her journey to go play the soviets and whatever and they keep being like hey we need a quote for the paper where you say freedom rules and the soviet union blows (laughs) and she keeps being like no i'm not gonna do that (laughs) so she just keeps like denying them over and over again (laughs) and then at the end she's in the soviet union for this tournament you know, she wins and it's this uh-huh. big triumphant thing. And then her her handler, her CIA handler or whatever is like driving her back to the airport. A CIA handler? Or I think he's actually like, maybe he's FBI. He's some sort of State Department official guy okay. who's like just there bodying her. And um, he's driving her back and he's like, hey, so, you know, like the president's going to want to meet you and shit. And we got like a whole bunch of, you know, uh, touring to do. And like, we got to get you in front of cameras and blah, blah, blah. You're going to be a really inspirational story. And she's like, Hey, actually I want to walk to the airport. And he's like, are you sure? And she's like, yeah, I'm going to walk to the airport from here. And he's like, we are in the Soviet union. And she's like, yeah, that's cool. It's fine. And then she just like leaves and she goes and plays chess with an old man. And it's implied that she stays in the Soviet union. Nice. Hell yeah. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> Why and would that you says leave? The end of the show. <laughs> Insane. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, I'll watch that. <laughs> Sounds it's, like it's, a, it's a worth a watch. Ending. It's a good time. Man, I've been reading a lot about this Cold War game. I oh am yeah, so excited. <laughs> I really want to play it. I'm gonna play it. Is it on PC? Can I get it on PC? I don't know. I know it's on mm. PS4, and I'm probably just gonna buy a PS5 because I have the l- left trigger show and mm. whatever. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I'll play it when I can. If I'm ever allowed to buy that thing, stupid. Yeah, it's, PS5. it's super sold out right now, right? It's yeah, hard yeah. Because like it's impossible to get electronics over here. It took me like I you remember it took me like months to get my motherboard for my computer just because like yeah. it's impossible to get shit over here. Mm-hmm. Because of COVID, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, um, what was the other thing you watched? Oh, uh, whatever. We'll talk about it another okay. time. What did you watch <laughs> this week? I watched uh, the Dark Crystal. Directed Ooh, by Jim Henson and Craig Oz. <laughs> yes. Um, a wonderful little movie. Have you ever seen Dark Crystal? I have, yes. Okay. So have you? Is, was this your first viewing? No, no. no it couldn't possibly it be. Was, <laughs> 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 what with everything I know about you. <laughs> it would be crazy if I'd never seen. No, yeah. I saw that movie for the first time in a theater, actually. And uh, it was quite an experience. Because the thing about the Dark Crystal is that it's not great story-wise. No. It's kind of okay. Like, this time watching it again, I thought there was a lot more metaphorically to it than the first time I saw it. Because the the movie is basically, you can say it in basically a sentence, Hero Boy is with the good people, and he has to go find a crystal and... uh a shard of a crystal and put it into the big dark crystal that the bad guys have. It's basically like light Lord of the Rings light. 
he goes puts the crystal in where the bad guys are and that defeats the bad guys yeah um but i think there's a little bit more uh in the details and i think that's what i like about the dark crystal a lot is that it doesn't really matter like a lot of the scenes barely have any talking it's mm-hmm. it's like it's like i mean it's an all puppet movie it's the only all puppet movie maybe <laughs> there's no human in the movie there's um, um i mean i guess no team america has uh living cats oh that's true Mm. Mm. but but they're supposed to be humans like there's no humans depicted right (laughs) um it's a it's a pretty wild movie it's an entirely puppet movie um the special effects are incredible they look better and it's 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 got a really distinct aesthetic to it that Mm -hmm. i think is mostly what it's remembered for i think it, it it has a couple things going for it that have kind of like out like overshadowed what is otherwise, you know, fairly weak, you know, plot and whatever. Um, yeah, I think is that it's like aesthetically very cool. Is that it's kind of like a lesser known work of Jim Henson, and kind of weird that it ever existed to begin with. <laughs> yeah, and then it's also just kind of got like an '80s nostalgia sort of thing to it. Yeah, I mean, I personally, and I've talked about this a lot on the show. I absolutely adore. Um, practical effects mm-hmm. and puppetry um really any sort of like thing that you make f- as a special effect that you could i just watching the movie there's like these scenes where these huge lumbering you know there's guys in these costumes you know like full-grown adults in these big like vulture costumes and they're walking down an actual tunnel with you know that's actually lit and you can hear like the scraping of their feet on the stone or whatever and like i there's not i've never seen a cgi movie that can capture that kind of no because it's like they never will that's the thing is like everybody can you can enhance a lot with cgi you can do a lot of really cool stuff with it but there's something that you're never going to get, which is just like a real space and like a real physical entity mm-hmm. interacting with other real physical entities. You're never going to replicate that. It's not going to happen. Right. You know, no matter how much they try. And I think that uh, where the wild things are is a movie. It's the perfect. It's the perfect <laughs> example of what to do. But I, and, I, and I think it looks really great. And I love that movie very much. And I think it got a lot of hate for being something that it, no, it never wanted to be um, at the time, but I think it's. What great. do you mean? Like, I, I remember a lot of critics just being like, "This movie is too boring," or "It's too like sappy," or. Oh. Um, I always thought the main critique of it was that it's just too twee. It's just yeah. way too like it's way too of its era in terms of like the like the twee indie rock sort of vibe that it has. I guess so, but I I wonder if it's I haven't actually watched it since since at least before 2010 so mm-hmm. i wonder if it's aged like that or if it sort of was just like because we were so steeped in that that it kind of you could you could tell that it yeah. was like made by those people but i feel like if you watched it now it would feel less like like it was it has it, i don't know if it carried the stink of indie rock from the two th- early 2000s right. to now. Well, I'd love to watch it again. But anyway, The Dark Crystal, um, I, I, it doesn't, there's no CGI in it. And I think that even though Where the Wild Things Are 
is a great use of like the mixture of CGI and practical. Um, mm-hmm. There are certain things that just feel really light in that movie. Yes. Like someone will get thrown or whatever and it'll feel CG. Um, mm-hmm. But in this movie, everything is heavy. Everything is scratchy and tactile. Everything is real. And I don't, I don't know if you can really recreate it. Everything feels like a painting nowadays. Um, right. Like the Avengers. That's a movie with real people in it and nothing feels real. No. Uh, <laughs> it's like, um, it's the, the Avengers is like kind of in that weird space of like video game movies that just like oh. every action movie now is just a video game movie. It doesn't, nothing feels even remotely real anymore. Like right. the, I've never seen John Wick. But the few clips I've seen of John it's Wick good. are just like, they're unreal, though. They're like, but I think that's kind of what they're going for. Like, well, they're not trying to make John Wick feel real. Uh, But John Wick is real. That's the thing. It's not CG. It yeah, just looks mean, crazy. <laughs> sure. But I mean, it's like, it's definitely like, it's got to be enhanced, right? Like some of the, like the movements and whatever has to be like they got to be juicing it in some way. Mean, there's like no way that up or there's no way that they're doing like that much choreography. Oh no, they like... are. That's the whole thing about the movie. Oh really? You should watch it. It's crazy. <laughs> um, it's really cool. Um, I, I'm not, I like some stupid action movies, but not that many. Um, mm. This one is pretty just straight ahead. But anyway, dark crystal, I think um, besides, besides my absolute love for uh the aesthetics and the and the practical effects and the formal aspects of the movie i think really was touching in a way that i was expect i forgot it being uh Mm -hmm. watching it again um you know i i have my problems with lord of the rings kind of apply here where it's like a completely emotionless uh you know characterless main character who's like i've got to go get the crystal and put it over here like apply to this where it's just like that's all he does he just goes but like there's a certain sort of understanding that you get to have with him where he's just like oh what is this world i've been living in (laughs) i've never known you get to explore it with him and then he meets this other girl um and then they, they there's a lot of fun characters in it that sort of I kind of forgot about how good a lot of the characters were like the nice, the, the, the Skeksis bird who gets outcast. Like he's really fun and he tries to trick them. And then there's like a, an, an old witch lady, um, who is sort of really zany and fun. Um, I was in my mind, I had remembered like, it's such a great looking movie, that has nothing to do and it's kind of boring but i was as an adult even more of an adult i guess than the first time i saw it it was uh not very boring at all it's 90 minutes it sort of clips by it's just like right. here's some crazy every single scene is some crazy looking like invention and then like a wacky character and then you move on and <laughs> uh i thought it was um i don't know i love it i think it's one yeah. of the better did movies you ever that, see the um, made. <laughs> did you ever see the other one the um labyrinth no, 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 no. The uh, they made like a prequel or something, didn't they? Well, the reason I watched Dark Crystals because my boyfriend had never seen it, and I kept being like, "I'm going to watch this," but it's in quarantine, so you can, you have to like watch things together all the time. Right. Yeah. So he was like, "I want to watch the movie," and uh, before we watched the show, so we watched the movie again. Um, so I'm about to watch the the show, 
But is I the show puppets or is it CG? It looks like CG. It's all puppets with CG like backgrounds and stuff. Mm. So it's not quite the same, mm. but it mostly is puppets. Did they do puppets in front of like green screens? I don't know how they did it. I don't know how they did it. I watched I watched a little bit of the fucking like making of and it looks like a lot of it is real. Mm-hmm. Um there's just like some CGI enhancement for like action scenes or whatever. But uh I don't know. It got canceled, which is annoying. Because <laughs> um, it's Netflix, right? Yeah, it was a Netflix. Yeah, they cancel everything. And apparently it wasn't like done. Like it was like ended on a cliffhanger or something. Cruel. So, uh, very annoying. Um, but yeah, this is the kind of movie. Someone said um, there was a film tweet that got a lot of likes recently that was like, uh, what's a movie that feels like it's made specifically for you? but still doesn't re- like didn't actually get you. Mm-hmm. Um, and my reaction, I thought about that for a long time and I was like, people do not make movies for me. Like a movie that would be made for me would be like dark crystal with like, like about the CIA. <laughs> I was going to say the perfect movie for you would be like the story of Lennon told with like, like <laughs> gnarly puppets. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it would just be like about like parapolitical stuff and like the occult and like Nazis, but yeah. but everyone's like a huge puppet. Okay, and that wait, movie what if just it's, hasn't ever existed? <laughs> yeah, what if it's the Red Army and then they're like advancing on the Nazis? Uh-huh. And then uh like some kind of like uh low level infantryman uh accidentally stumbles upon a Nazi experiment <laughs> where he gets the uh Akira power oh and he my becomes God. a big Akira Cronenberg thing. <laughs> Yeah, and but it's like directed by Stuart just, Gordon and it's just like yeah, uh-huh. real. <laughs> and then they just like steal wholesale from uh, Inglorious Bastards and just like have it end with killing Hitler. Hell yes. <laughs> see, that's a movie that I would like to see, but no one will. This is the thing. Like you said, it seems crazy that the Dark Crystal even exists. But yeah, what's and to cr- think that yours is like even further than yeah. that. <laughs> no, because this is like I've written stories like that and people were like, no one is going to let you make this. It's literally the reason I stopped like being interested in making movies because you just aren't allowed you aren't allowed to make something cool (laughs) but um and dark crystal was weirdly a hit i didn't know okay it did um it was i mean it doubled its money that's pretty good yeah at the time in like 1980 what three or something um 82 82 it did like well people were like oh wow it's profitable uh, and then Labyrinth like ate shit because it came out in the summer of '86, um, so you know just destroyed by every huge movie you've ever heard of. Um, and then he never really got to make another movie again before he died, unfortunately. But that guy, you know, I don't know what Jem Henson's politics were or anything, but like on the formal side of, I think he was a fucking genius, and I wish he got to make a lot more movies. Yeah. Damn shame. Damn shame. Give us more Muppets. <laughs> Give us more Muppets. I mean, yeah. And not just the Kermit ones. The crazy ones. The ones with like <laughs> laser eyes and stuff. <laughs> give us the give us like more I wanted more like Muppet stories, like uh like Muppet Treasure Island. I'd love yeah. it if they did like a like a Muppet uh like like if they did Muppet history. Oh yeah. What would um, a what would Muppet history would be? 
Like, uh, I mean, they couldn't Muppet do the John Brown. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say they couldn't do like cool stuff like that. But if they did do cool stuff, it would be very fun to see like a, like a Muppet World War II story. Oh, where yeah. like oh my god, maybe, I, I guess like Gonzo would be Hitler. <laughs> oh, it would be like big, like uh, you'd have like um the what's his name, the Eagle. Yeah, the Eagle guy. He he would be uh FDR. Yeah, unfortunately, he would. <laughs> He'd be like, we are going to war. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, it would be like, it would, they would all be the, like, the leaders. I'm trying to and think then, of like, who the, Churchill the was. The grunts in the, in the armies would be like the rats. Yeah. <laughs> oh, oh, no. <laughs> the little helmets Oh, shake. I got a bad feeling about this. <laughs> As they march into Stalingrad. <laughs> My boots are freezing. <laughs> it's a great idea. Yeah, this is a wonderful idea. And then the Swedish chef is Stalin. Oh wow! Yes, of course. Hurdy hurdy. We're yeah, going to kill like, the but Nazis. They, but they keep adding like distinctly Russian sounds into it. So it's like hurdy gurdy ski. Hurdy <laughs> gurdy He doesn't really speak any language. Yeah. Mushka mushka. <laughs> And it's all subtitled. Yeah. <laughs> that would be a great. I want to. Yeah, see this that is one. a great idea. <laughs> Make it happen, Brian Henson. Yeah, come on, man! Don't be a coward. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, speaking of other movies, uh, directors that. Um, aren't allowed to make anything anymore <laughs> yeah okay all right um, i'm with you terry gilliam directed the movie that we watched this week uh which i picked and it was called fear and loathing in las vegas um this is a movie starring johnny depp and benicia del toro that is famously a of of not a movie version of a very famous novel called fear and loathing las vegas by hunter s thompson uh so had you seen this movie before yes of course okay i don't know because sometimes people haven't seen or know about hunter s thompson i mean i i would have bet money that you had but yeah <laughs> um i don't know i i've met a lot of people who are like i never saw that movie what is it even about well what's interesting is that i saw the movie before i knew who hunter s thompson was before i knew he was a real person so like <laughs> oh at first i like i remember seeing the movie for the first time my friend uh julia in high school had uh had recommended that i watch it and i watched it and i went to her the next day and i was like weird choices for like johnny depp to like why did like he talks so weird and like he has like no hair <laughs> and it's like weird because he's like the hottest guy in the world and yeah. like why do they make him look like that and she's like well i think that's like what the guy looked like. And I'm like, oh, I guess, yeah. <laughs> Wait, it's a real guy? <laughs> it's a real guy. <laughs> so this movie, uh, it came out in 2000... Uh, 1998. 1998, sorry. Yeah. Um, it came out in 1998, and they had been trying to make it for a very long time. And and um, Ralph Bakshi um, actually had been he'd been dying he'd been working with ralph steadman to make mm -hmm. an animated movie out of it because he was oh. like what if he's like you can't make you can't make this book into a movie but tuntress thompson's girlfriend owned the rights to this as a to the movie version like the option rights yeah and she didn't want to make it a cartoon she wanted to make it a live action movie 
Bakshi I, was like, I kind of agree. I think that actually now that I'm like thinking about it, like at first I was like, oh, wouldn't it be cool if they did like a super jail or like, uh, you know, maybe um, like Adventure Time, like really fluid, flowy animation yeah. or whatever. It could look like Ralph like, Stedman's art, you know? Yeah, but the problem there is that you'd be like, you'd be romanticizing it too much. That's right. And that kind of just ruins it entirely. <laughs> um, so, But did you know who else was uh, t- in talks to make Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Who was the director they wanted? Alex Cox? No. Scorsese. Oh, yes. Scorsese, Scorsese. was going to make it with uh, De Niro or and... Um, Jack Nicholson or Jack something. Jack Nicholson, yeah. Which was... Ugh, Ridiculous. Sucked. Awful movie. Could you sucked. fucking imagine? <laughs> <laughs> Terrible. Just Jack Nicholson doing like... Just the, the, fucking... the stiffest performance. Just doing like, the, Doing I the like fucking drugs. wave monologue. Are you kidding? <laughs> But, still, but he's doing it like in The Departed and he's dropping end bombs in it. <laughs> For no reason. For no reason. Yeah. It's not in the book. All right. So uh, the, the real story behind this book is that um, Hunter S. Thompson was a young, you know, weird hippie writer um, and uh, was, was trying to talk with... Um, a man named Oscar Zeta Acosta, who was um, one of the leaders of the Chicano movement in Los Angeles, but there was a ton of like political tenseness going on in LA, and uh, they couldn't even like find places to talk where there was like they weren't didn't feel like they were going to get in trouble. So they decided to take some trips to Las Vegas just to like be interviewed for a story. Uh, and during those trips, they kept getting distracted by doing a ton of drugs because <laughs> um, they were friends and they just liked drugs. And he wrote a book about it um, and that was a fictionalized version. Um, and in this book, what happens is there's basically no reason they go they go to um, cover They're covering a motorcycle, a motorcycle race, right? Yeah. Which is kind of true, but kind of not. Uh, they cover a motorcycle race, and then they just get distracted by doing a ton of drugs and thinking about America as a concept. Um, and then they go back to cover a uh, the national DA uh, convention. Yeah, it's like a policeman's convention on on um, drug stuff yeah and then they think that's really lame and then again get very distracted and then they leave uh and that's like plot wise there's not much more that's basically it yeah um there's <laughs> there's a s- scene where they uh acosta or not acosta but dr gonzo uh R- benicio del toro's character um gets involved with a girl and then they want to ditch her and so they ditch her and then that's like the whole yeah, story. there's a bunch of like little you know minute sort of like moments within the story but for the most part what you're experiencing is just this like fever dream sort of muddy mess of just like entanglements throughout las vegas where they just kind of are <laughs> just rolling around just bumping into stuff and like that's most of what the movie is that's and right. what the book is and then amidst it all are just like extremely classic like pretty much everything in the book is like among the the, the pantheon of of like hunter stuff right right like among all his books there's a reason why this is the one that everybody likes even though it's the one that like is about nothing and makes no sense <laughs> Um, yeah, because, because it's got passages, all of his best. Yeah. It, it's all his best ideas are all in this. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so, so had you read this book? Mm-hmm. Yeah, a couple times. Uh, I was for a while. I was seriously considering being a journalist. Okay. Um, that was like what my path was in college for a little while. Um, and so I kind of spent a while, like really, like honing in on on like the masters of what I was trying to do right. journalistically. You know, because I was kind of starting to get more serious about like left politics at the time and like you know I'd, I'd kind of identified as an anarchist since i was like 13 or whatever but i sure. never really like you know been too deeply involved in anything or whatever um and so i kind of started to kind of drill into like what kind of a journalist i wanted to be and what kind of writing i wanted to do and i started getting really into like hunter thompson and um uh ted is it ted conover I don't know. Yeah, I think it's Ted Conover who um, wrote the book Coyotes. Okay. And um, New Jack. Yeah, Ted Conover. He's great, by the way. You should check him out. People at home, check him out. He's a very underappreciated writer. Um, he writes these books where he like goes deep undercover in like various circumstances and just like lives a weird life for a while. That sounds um, fun. So his first book, Coyotes, is just about him jumping the border several times and just kind of like he'll travel with migrants he'll travel with coyotes and he just like interviews and talks to them and just like kind of gets their stories he works as a farmhand in like a couple different places really really cool book um and new jack he wanted to um he wanted to interview prison guards at sing sing Mm -hmm. and the state wouldn't let him so he just like applied for the job and trained and became a, a prison guard at Sing Sing and then wrote a book about <laughs> it. Jesus. <laughs> What's um, that book called? New Jack. Okay. Um, but anyways, yeah, so I, I'm deeply familiar with the works of, okay, well, of Hunter Thompson. You, know, you should you should take a you should illuminate me because I I read I read Fear and Loathing on the Campaign Trail seventy eight when mm-hmm. I was like 12 (laughs) and i did not understand what was happening or why i Mm. should be caring um and then i read fear and loathing in las vegas when i was in high school and i liked it um but i liked the movie better because i was like this is all kind of just boring bullshit uh it's more fun to watch it and watch johnny depp be a goofball um so you know i haven't really read it since i was and i never really got into hunter s thompson you know what i mean like Mm -hmm. i didn't like learn about his life and like what he was really about and his like you know what he run for sheriff of a some town or something he ran for sheriff of i think um maybe it was boulder or no aspen aspen colorado, colorado. uh-huh and like the the famous story from that is that he this is like part of a, a long history of like people running for office in funny ways because around the same <laughs> time would have been uh when jello biafra ran for oh yeah uh mayor of san francisco but he ran for uh, sheriff of Aspen, and his big thing was that like he was running against this super like old school conservative guy with like a crew cut uh, that was like you know short on the sides, long on the top sort of look. And yeah. uh, Hunter like bicked his head so that he could <laughs> um, so that he could constantly refer to him as his long haired opponent. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Well, he's already bald too. Yeah, he was bald, so he like bicks the rest of his head, so he just had like a fully smooth head. Yeah. <laughs> um, but anyways, yeah, he, um, so he's 
you know, the, the basic, you know, entry level Hunter Thompson thing is that he's, he's famous for pioneering this kind of like strange genre of journalism that, uh, kind of just wasn't even journalism anymore. Uh, right. Well, but it, in the same way that like, uh, like, like you could say like, you know, Jackson Pollock isn't really painting, you know, it's like he, what he's sure. doing is like <laughs> using paint to make art. So it's painting. Yeah. And in the same sense, you know, Hunter Thompson is using coverage of an event to make, you know, a story. A, a story. And so in that way, he is still doing journalism. To but, illuminate something. But he did, um, his first big thing was the Kentucky Derby, uh, what do you call it? Um, like the Kentucky Derby is depraved or something like that. And it uh-huh. was supposed to be coverage of the Kentucky Derby and he got like fucked over and he couldn't see it or something like that. And so he submitted this piece about the experience of going to see the Kentucky Derby. Uh-huh. And that was kind of what like shattered this sort of perception of like what journalism was at the time. And he, th- that was the first time that people were like, Oh, look at this guy doing something weird and interesting. Let's, mm-hmm hire him to do this forever now that basically like from that point on <laughs> yeah, it was like anytime you hired him you were like of course he's gonna do something weird because <laughs> he was working for rolling stone right like mm-hmm. mostly um yeah so campaign trail is mostly collected from uh his rolling stone coverage of the campaign right um so this movie is um what's what's strange about it is that it first of all terry gilliam directed this terry gilliam is not american if you might know who that is, he used to be in Monty Python and Monty Python's Flying Circus. He did all the cartoons and stuff. He did all the cartoons. He directed um, Life of Brian. He directed um, a Holy Grail. He directed, you know, 12 Monkeys and, and, and Time Bandits. He's a very weird, surrealist filmmaker. Um, really great filmmaker, but he also doesn't ever get to do what he wants. He's kind of cursed. <laughs> uh probably by being a huge asshole like he's <laughs> there's one there's a funny thing about cursed filmmakers it's like oh their movies always go bad but he seems like a huge dick too so it's like yeah. he's probably hard to work with and no one wants to you know not that that means like the people who are controlling all the money and strings in in hollywood are like good and not assholes yeah. but he you know whatever well and there's certain things that are like you know there's things that you can chalk up to like, sure, he's not allowed to do what he wants to do. And then there's things that you, you really can't excuse. Like what the fuck with like the brothers Grimm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> brothers Grimm is a piece of shit. Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus, as I understand it is a piece of shit. I never saw it. <laughs> uh, it's okay. I thought it was, I mean, it's, it's, it's a mess because uh, Heath Ledger died in the middle of shooting it. Oh, right. And they like did half of it with another person or something with like four other guys. Um, Great. (laughs) So it's a mess, but it's kind of interesting anyway. Um, But yeah, he, he's great in places. He's very confusing in places, but I think that he was probably the perfect um, for me. I think I, I was a really big fan of Terry Gilliam uh, until things like Brothers Grimm, I think that like Tideland is maybe one of his better movies, um, mm-hmm. which is criminally underseen. Um, but I think this might be like the perfect use of him, where if you're going to make a movie where the whole point is that nothing follows, <laughs> there's no like plot, uh, right. everything is visual, everything is trying to get across feelings uh emotions 
tension and moods through visuals and like weird audio. I think he did a really great job with this, um, which is why I picked this one because we could talk about Hunter and we could talk about Terry Gilliam. Um, and and I, so, I mean, do you, are you uh, not a fan of him? Of Terry Gilliam? Yeah. I mean, I like 12 Monkeys. Sure. Um, I don't think I, I don't like the Brothers Grimm. It's bad. I don't think I've yeah. seen any of the other ones aside from Fear and Loathing. Um, oh. So I, I don't really have a strong opinion. of. I love Monty Python. I love the, the cartoons in it are fantastic. Yeah. Um, but no, I mean, I'm not as as familiar with his his directorial, uh, you know, oeuvre. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think he. But I'd say generally, I don't like this movie that much. Okay. That's interesting. As much as I love, I love the book. I don't really love the movie very much. Mm. And why? Boring. Uh, it's <laughs> it's really messy, and mm-hmm. um, it's supposed to be. And I get sure. that. <laughs> um, it's supposed to be like uncomfortable and and slogging because that's kind of the point of the book. Um, mm-hmm. But it, I was realizing as I was watching it that I think this may have been the first time that I've actually seen the end because I think I've like what? watched it so many times that I've just like, and I think every time I like tune out at some point or I'm just like, I think I'm done here, you know, <laughs> just turn it off. It's funny. Cause the first time I remember, I think the first time I did watch it, I didn't see the end because mm. I got too high and fell asleep. Yeah, because um, everyone wants to watch it stone. Like everyone wants right. to get really high because nobody understands the point. Nobody right. gets the idea of this. <laughs> it's not supposed to be cool that they do drugs. No, it's supposed to be that they're fucking out of their gourds and can't like, experience anything. Yeah, it's supposed to feel miserable. Like right. the drugs are the bad part of this. Right, and so so it's really hard to talk about this movie because like, like we said, it doesn't really have a plot. Um, but as they fail to do anything and continue going down the spiral, they start taking adrenochrome. <laughs> uh, yeah, which that, is a- that was a fun one that I completely, uh, forgot and d- didn't expect. And then, uh, out of nowhere, and he's just like, Ooh, adrenochrome. Adrenoch- and I'm like, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> <laughs> And I then they have like a whole, they talk about it for a while. <laughs> He's like, they take it out a little baby. <laughs> yeah. Well, I thought that Hunter S. Thompson made it up, and I, I'm adrenochrome. S- I'm still not sure that that's not true because if, even if it is real, it for sure like all of the mythology of adrenochrome that's used in like Q circles and whatever absolutely stems from here. That's this what I'm is saying. where everybody found out about I, it. <laughs> well, when I remember when I first started listening to Chapo, they started talking about like people doing adrenochrome. I thought they were directly referencing this book mm-hmm. because as far as I know, this is the first time I heard that drug. Right. Because it's not real. <laughs> like you can't really <laughs> get a, it's not a real drug. Uh, so I'm pretty sure that that's that whole like mythology of rich people doing because, you know, rich people do. I don't know, blood transfusions and like the whole eating babies thing, I think comes from this joke in this book <laughs> right. where they're just trying to push the limits. And once they start doing that, then they're like hitting rock bottom and they like start like there's a scene where like uh, Dr. Gonzo uh, like fucking is terrorizing this woman at a diner 
yeah. um, like brandishing a knife at her and freaking her out. Um, and you're just like not supposed to think that they're good people. Like, <laughs> right. It's the thing that struck me this time watching it though, is that like, even from the very beginning, it's like that. There's no point in this movie where the drugs are fun. There's no literally from the moment you're introduced to everybody, it seems like they're having a really bad time. They're <laughs> yeah. on drugs that are just making them miserable the whole fucking movie. Mm-hmm. And like the the scene where he's like terrorizing the diner waitress, you're like, he's already done that to like 10 different people yeah. throughout this movie. <laughs> this isn't really like a, you know, it's not a big pivotal moment it's just another time that he's doing it (laughs) right because they did that to the the uh, cleaning lady Mm -hmm. um they've done that to multiple like there's a journalist in the elevator oh yeah the valet guys like Mm -hmm. just constantly harassing people um just being obnoxious shitheads and you know it kind of reminds me of like um vice (laughs) Mm -hmm. and like there's a was there's like a whole book that like Matt Taibbi wrote about being a shithead to people, and that's like a joke or whatever. Right. Um, and there's a certain thing where it's like, I don't know, I don't think that Hunter S. Thompson seems like an asshole, mm-hmm. um, but I don't know how much of this story was true. But I think no, it's definitely stitched together, and like it's it's intentionally like this it's not a it's not a direct retelling of them going on a drug binge it's about them being in las vegas and seeing all these things and they were probably like a little bit stoned right exactly. and they saw these people and they were like they're like lizards because of their like fucked up skin that they have from the sun you know <laughs> and yeah. then that spun out into this thing the drug use is supposed to be over the top gratuitous you know like it's it's intentionally like that for the purpose of showing like you know it comes back to something we talked about last week mm-hmm. um when combo um you know when, uh-huh. when 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 combo goes to jail and whatever or when combo you know at the end when he beats the shit out of milky and then sean is throwing the flag into the water and he says like i don't know you know he's like i don't know what this was for but it sure as shit wasn't england right. you know like whatever this was that's not what it was and and this is supposed to be kind of like that for the for the 60s and 70s like drug culture. Yeah. You know, it's it's all wrapped up in that final monologue, right, where he's he's talking about this idea of like, you know, you thought that you were going to find salvation for 3 bucks a hit, you mm-hmm. know, you're not like this isn't the answer and if anything it took us further from the answer. You right. know, this movie started out about something and now it's nothing it's about absolutely nothing (laughs) it's about nothing it's just about two guys who got shit-faced over a weekend and then didn't do anything and then that's the end right and then if the you know if what if you're to believe what actually happened to acosta the guy who's supposed to be dr gonzo he like went to mexico and disappeared and is probably dead and like Mm. for for all we know like the fbi killed him or whatever right you know, being a leader of a Chicano movement. Um, and, you know, what's interesting about Hunter S. Thompson is how political he is without really saying anything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I- I've always been sort of confused about where he's coming from um, because he feels like really the sort of like the, the, the Orman of the River sticks for the 60s you know mm-hmm. and he talks about and you mentioned the famous wave speech um right. 
and I don't I don't know it by heart, but basically he says like you can look out from a really high point in Las Vegas and see the high water mark over. Yeah, I mean well the LA. gist of it is the gist of it is that like there was a time in the sixties where it felt like everything was going right. And it felt like the the left was winning and you know, people were becoming enlightened and people were moving towards socialism and the anti war movement was like really making progress and everything looked like it was coming to a head and it felt like that in the moment. And everybody who was in, you know, San Francisco, especially in the 60s, felt like they were part of a movement that was really Mm -hmm. actually going somewhere. And then some things happened. (laughs) Which no one ever talks about. No one ever tells you what they were. But it's just like the 60s ended. The 60s ended. It's a a rapid, (laughs) you know, it's a rapid succession of a few things, which are that, um, you know, the the Manson murders and Mm -hmm. um, Nixon getting reelected and there various things like that um there's a couple more that people will usually cite but basically there's like a couple of things that happen in rapid succession mlk assassinated this wave huh martin luther king being assassinated absolutely malcolm x is assassinated like these things all happen and they just kind of like put an end to this great time and so the metaphor is that we're riding this glorious wave and then, you know, you know, you, you have these memories of the wave, but you can look out and see where the wave crashed and receded back. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's something that I think about so fucking much right now. <laughs> like yeah. we've talked about this too, that like there, like every boomer that we hate, like all these like lib boomers that we make fun of, you know, they all were there. Like, boomers were there. That's who the boomers are. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. John Kerry chucked his war medals. You know, like, these are, like, famous stories about these people who were involved in real, actual, radical politics who now, you know, like, Bill, was it Bill Ayers, the the Weather Underground guy, uh-huh. um, uh, is, like, friends with Obama. You yeah. know, like, the, these... <laughs> freaks. But it's... Every cool person in the 60s was a communist. Every cool person in the 60s was a communist. And right now, every cool person is a communist. That's right. And we just got past, <laughs> you know, Bernie losing and then mm-hmm. Biden winning. <laughs> and it kind of feels like it could be, it's it's one of those times where it's like, if you're not vigilant and if you're not oh, yeah. forcing the issue and you're not like seriously propagandizing and going out there and evangelizing for the left and trying to like stand up for for i i posted this a long time ago and i i might retweet it after this comes out but like uh-huh. if we're not out there like standing up for like aoc and ilan omar and like these people these last people that we have left in in <laughs> in the mainstream if we're not like coming out for them, we're just gonna the wave is gonna crash and it's gonna recede and we're gonna go back to fucking you know shitty newspapers nobody reads and and you know <laughs> voting for Dennis Kucinich and like just yeah, living but, miserably but I think I think that there are like there are I mean I think that they you know the fucking anyone who's a Democrat I I I I with a big suspicion uh I think we have to be doing a lot this is the thing is that like nobody knows what to do anymore because of how deeply they won Mm-hmm. Like after the 60s, 
the the deep state won the fascist won we live in post-fascism like right. you know and i think it's important because you had people like hunter s thompson who recognized what happened but didn't have the information and i mm -hmm. think a lot of the people in the 70s what 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 is so interesting about the 70s is that everyone sort of realized they lost and didn't know why mm -hmm. there was no sense of like oh the cia assassinated these people they are you know you know they they did the manson murders all of this stuff happened for a reason and it took all of the energy away and t turned everyone against us it was just everyone just stopped um and what we see now is that nobody even knows where to start anymore they just know we want change and this is why you have things like people are like i guess we hate the cops <laughs> and it's like yeah that's bad but like the cops don't have the power they're just the right. security guards no one knows where to attack anymore um and we really have to start i think you're absolutely right that you have to start from a place of like knowing where the messaging goes and knowing what we're actually trying to do because so many people and the thing i see what i wanted to say f to what you said is that i've seen we've all seen this happen this switch of like oh yeah i'm a leftist i'm a, a leftist who cares about defunding ice and then as soon as they get a fucking like new york times writing job they're sucking obama's dick or whatever they're yeah. like shaking hands with the democratic party elites it's not you know, <laughs> it, it doesn't even take a decade you know yeah. what i mean um absolutely it, it it fucking happened when obama was elected it's gonna happen again now people need to emotionally prepare themselves for this that like a lot of your friends on the left, a lot of the people that you know who were involved in cool stuff with you, people who you fucking, people you like took road trips with to go knock doors for Bernie, people who you fucking like met at a DSA meeting, who you were like sure were like the most inspiring <laughs> down, person yeah, you ever met, people people you thought were inspiring, who fucking made you more resilient through the hard times of this past couple of years mm -hmm. those people are gonna break your fucking heart mm -hmm. and they're gonna they're gonna turn to liberalism uh, of course they're going to <laughs> they're going to and i know they're going to because it happened to me i've seen it happen it's yeah. fucking heartbreaking but and we can't it, it can't go from oh i guess nobody's interested in this anymore everyone just wants to elect president aoc or whatever like that's right. not enough anymore it has to be organizing a separate and and i don't i don't even claim to know what party or how it's going to happen but like that conversation is happening and people are having it and like lots of different organizations are having it and i think unless unless you get involved in that instead of just like yelling at people for not for whatever on twitter <laughs> like then you're not going to do anything. It's just going to all of a sudden it's going to be, you know, the the America the bottom's going to fall out of America again, and it's going to be worse this time. And then there'll be no one on Twitter to even argue with, and you'll just be left <laughs> fucking in techno feudalism. Yeah, I I happen to think that AOC and like the AOCs of the world are more important to our future than than we give them credit for. And, you know, it's, there's this sort of like circular firing squad thing that we do on the left. And, you know, the, the thing that made me post this initially 
was there was something where it felt like the Democratic Party had oh you know what it was it was when um, at the um, at the convention mm-hmm. when they had AOC give that speech to nominate Bernie. And then all these libs on Twitter were like, fucking bitch, what a piece of shit. <laughs> she fucking sucks. I can't believe she did that. And they gave her that spot and she fucking said that. And everybody's like, hey, calm down. Like, that's, you know, this is part of the process. Like, you have somebody at the convention do this. Yeah. This is, it happens every time. Uh, <laughs> and, and, just realizing that that was done intentionally. That was 100% done intentionally by the party. They gave her that slot and they gave her that situation exactly to do this, to mm-hmm. turn people against her so that she becomes less powerful and less popular. And yeah, well, what I mean to say is that there's, there's, there is a new path for us. It's a longer path and it's a miserable slogging path that unfortunately requires us to engage in electoralism, which nobody likes to do. But, <laughs> you know, having a foothold in traditional government is never a bad thing for us. And there's just this like fucked up thing that happens where like she's getting, she she's one of her only representatives left who has any modicum of power or influence. And, she gets attacked from the right and from the libs and from us. She's getting attacked <laughs> by literally everybody all the time. And we're just like, we're, we're aiding in this operation to assassinate her essentially <laughs> by ourselves being like, you know, we need to, we need to look towards like violent revolution. Are you fucking kidding? Like it's been decades that we've had, you know, serious anarchists and serious communists and like, we never get any closer to that day, you know, and it's, it's disheartening and it's, it's, I don't know. It's, it's, it's hard to really express, but. Yeah. I don't, I don't think I I don't, I mean, well, we're getting very in the weeds here, but like, (laughs) I don't think that the sort of answer is simply revolution without it. Like that doesn't mean anything, right? Like even if you could somehow, get enough money to arm every poor person like there's not enough cohesion to do anything mm-hmm. i don't necessarily disagree that uh that the the people who have become scions of like what i consider radical liberalism i mean like aoc has literally said she doesn't think of socialism as anything but like no the nordic model mm-hmm. um I I just I I think that they may be able to help in an electoral party, but I I think that even AOC realizes that the Democratic Party is against her, and she's not going to be able to do anything to flip the Democratic Party more left. Um, right. She's only experienced pushback from her own party, uh, and not pushback, but like sabotage. You right. know, absolutely so active I, sabotage. I think the most likely thing to happen is that the Bernie Sanders and the AOCs and the Ilan Omar are going to have to splinter the party and destroy the Democratic Party and kind of participate in a, a different kind of electoralism and they're and lose to Republicans for like f- four to eight years <laughs> mm-hmm. until they can build an energy where it's like Bernie can actually win outside of the Democratic Party. Yes. Um, well, what I mean to say, wh- like part of why we need to stand up for for AOC and Illinois and whatever is is that in order for that splinter to happen in order for that to continue to if that's the strategy going forward 
and we really want to like drive a stake through the heart of liberalism altogether, mm-hmm. we need more AOCs, right? Not fewer of them. You know what I mean? Like the only way for that splinter to work is if we get a lot of them, and we're able to actually like have some collective power through just sheer numbers. And I think it's, I think it's, there's tons of them. There's tons of, you know, young people. In the DSA now, if the DSA could, if you can push the DSA to become a party and the AOC supports the DSA and the DSA supports the AOCs, you can separate that out. And the mm-hmm. math does might not work right now um, because everyone's like, well, third party, but like you, it's, it's not just third party because right now the only third parties are green and libertarian, which right. are like clearly, you know, controlled opposition. Um, sure. And people don't want to like people don't want to look that far back in history but like you know as early as 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 recently as like the 90s, you know, Ross Perot mounted a very serious third party yeah. run on on a strictly anti-NAFTA campaign. Like that's all that was really about and and he may not be politically cool at all. Uh but he did prove very much so that like there is viability for a third path. And yeah. there's no reason to believe that it's impossible. He didn't win, and we won't win. But it is possible to believe that, you know... You could if you tried hard enough and you pushed your... This is the thing. I and think even people, if you can't, even if you can't win, even if you can't actually win, the idea of pushing the party left, the idea of like making the Democrats go left, is toothless until we do this yeah you know what i mean like the idea of like holding anybody accountable for anything is toothless until we can literally say we're gone we're out of here yeah and we're out of here in a meaningful way yeah the uh, you're the 30 percent of america who is voting for you is not voting for you even if we lose the republicans fuck you even on a more micro level than that if the house has enough people who are part of you know the the theoretical third party, the, the DSA party. third yeah, party, yeah. the socialist party. If there's enough people in the house who are socialists who can boycott a vote, you know, yes, it's a lot easier absolutely. to get concessions out of the Democrats if you're able to say we have, you know, 20, 30, 40 votes that we're fucking taking, you know, we're we're not voting for anything, you know, on this. We're absolutely. we're just abstaining. And and aren't controlled by the sort of like fundraising machine that the Democrats engage in. Uh you know, and it's that's the thing. Like you said, it's going to take so much boring work it's not getting a gun and showing up and wearing all black and doing something that feels cool like a fucking action movie it's right. slogging boring work to get people to like move inches of power towards you know something more beneficial for uh you know the majority of people in america absolutely uh, and it's it's fucking boring, <laughs> but I think people are learning the exactly the wrong lesson from Bernie losing, mm-hmm. which is that lots of idiots <laughs> look at an obvious Democratic and CIA collabo rigging the election against a, a slightly left-wing candidate as, I guess, the youth don't come out to vote. Ridiculous. I guess the people don't want to vote for left wing candidates or whatever the highest youth turnout in a lifetime absolutely the wrong lesson to learn and it's completely ridiculous and if the big lesson to take away from this election more so than anything else doesn't even involve bernie sanders it involves the joe biden donald trump matchup and the fact that both of them were able to turn out more voters than anybody ever has in history Mm -hmm. 
and it's has nothing to do. They're going to they're going to try to spin this for years. They're going to try to spin this <laughs> as like people came out against Trump because of his failures on COVID or they're going to say that like people came out for Trump because of like nationalism and 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 whatever and like, you know, black and latino people flocked to him because of, you know, uh, sure. because of like rap videos and whatever. <laughs> like there's going to be all sorts of people Fucking who are going to who are going to try to come up with all sorts of rationalizations for all this. But you know in your heart, everybody at home listening to this, you know in your fucking heart that what this was about was always covid and yeah oh yeah what the, what the question <laughs> everybody asked themselves before they went into the voting booth who didn't already have their mind made up the question they were asking themselves was which do i want more for covid to go away or for the lockdowns to go away mm-hmm. and that's the question that people ask themselves and that is a that is a material question you know it's 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 yeah. always a simpler answer than anybody wants to give you which is that it's it's a material thing are people suffering more socially and 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 health-wise or are they suffering more financially that's what the question of this was and that's the future of politics if somebody just wants to fucking reach out and grab it is to just say like talk about material things you know yes. a materialist lens is the right lens it always is that's the best thing that marx <laughs> ever gave us yeah was, was materialist analysis yes and if you if you you, it's just like i know it's so tired to be like well theory what is should we read the theory should we not read the theory just it just do yourself a fucking favor so you have some framework for this and just read what is to be done by lenin like it still applies you have to fucking work within bourgeois electoralism and without it all of the time <laughs> like it's exactly the same shit no matter yes. how powerful the czar is and we basically have feudalism now we're right on the edge of even more powerful feudalism uh and it's like if you can get people to understand that we aren't democrats we also hate democrats we're not lying we're being honest this is what we really want to do we really want to give everybody you know control over their own economic lives and then you can promise them little things and then actually give them little things you fucking win it's how it works if you can get the modicum a little modicum of the closeness to levers of power to give them even the tiniest material gains be like this is what i want to give you this is the ability i had to give it to you and i gave it to you they will be with you forever as long as you don't betray them as long as you don't say, oh, actually, we couldn't do that because we had to means test it and we had to fuck, you know, like they are, everyone is tired of that from 50, 100 years of democratic bullshit uh, that they know not to trust the Democratic Party. They know not to trust the Republican Party because they don't care. They know nothing will change. So if you can present change and then do a little bit of change, it, it's all you have to do. It's just very difficult. <laughs> yeah. Um, so to circle this back to fear and loathing to kind of close this out, right. um, there's the, the wave analogy is eternal, you know, it's, it's, it's eternal yeah. and it, and it will always be true of every social movement. And the responsibility of us on the left is to ride the wave while the wave is going. And then each time the wave crashes and pulls back to try to just grab as much sand as you can on the way back in yeah, <laughs> and to, 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 to pull more and more of the shore away. So every time that wave crashes, we're chipping away at it more and more and more. And, you know, if you just look back like 20 years ago 
at like what the state of conversation politically was about, you know, about like uh, like an idea like well an idea like Medicare for all just take Medicare for all very simply yeah you know, universal you know single payer where the state of conversation was twenty years ago versus where it is today mm. is the result of multiple waves crashing receding and then crashing again and receding sure and and the the hope is that we don't fall into the pessimism of the seventies. After all that we've right. been through together, after all that we've done, you know, since, <laughs> I mean, I'd say that, like, kind of this, like, early germ of it would be, like, the um, like the anti-World uh, Trade protests in, like, the late 90s, uh-huh. and then, you know, moving on through the early 2000s into the anti-war movement, and then, like, the rise of Michael Moore, Occupy and then Wall Street. would be Occupy Wall Street, and then that brings us to Bernie. We have a thread of history that's gone through all this time we don't have to give it back, you know, yeah. but we do have to try to keep it. Yeah. We just you know? have to ratchet it up <laughs> just a little, like every click you just get yeah. a little higher. Um, and yeah, so this is a very, very political episode. So <laughs> I'll just say, I like this movie. <laughs> yeah. It's a good movie. Johnny it's, Depp, it's good enough. Uh, but, um, but really, I mean, I think this watching it, read this, the book, read the book for sure. Sure. Watching that, watching it this time, really had me feeling a lot of these things uh, i think mm-hmm. it was inevitable that we were going to talk about that i wasn't expecting that we were that i was going to feel this way but it like it is a requiem for a reset like mm-hmm. there, there's a feeling that like we have to start all over and i have no idea where to start and luckily this was 50 years ago so we're not there. We're much closer to, you know, the 50s or 60s than we are to the 70s because we didn't get absolutely crushed yet. Right. Um, but Johnny Depp is an incredible actor. He did a great job in this movie. This movie looks nuts. Nothing else looks like it. Um, but it's so depressing and sad now. I remember yeah. watching it when I was a kid and being like, oh, this is a fun, surreal drug romp. Um uh-huh. But watching it again, it's it's depraved. It is about people grieving. It's about yeah. people realizing that they have lost. It's about that, and, and they talk about it constantly. And I com- basically completely forgot about how this movie works, where it's just like Johnny Depp being Hunter S. Thompson talking about how the American dream is dead, mm-hmm. and you kind of realize what the American dream was was like the possibility of change, the yeah. possibility that. If you wanted to, you could take something in your hands and create a better world for yourself. And that dream literally died like that year when he was like the year before he wrote this. And he was just like, oh, shit. I was like, now I'm just in this empty place where we just do drugs and it means nothing. Yeah. And that's what this movie is. It's a it's a it's a requiem. And it's like more than ever did I watch this movie and understand why it's called fear and loathing. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause you that kind of just rolled off my tongue for most of my life. It's like a oh, fear and loathing Las Vegas, but it's about fucking anxiety and hatred. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and uh, I think it really, really does that well. Um, so if you've never seen this movie, it's a wild, wild ride. <laughs> yeah. Um, and to tie a quick little bow on the end of this, mm-hmm. um, I think a modern fear and loathing um, would tell the story of somebody sitting for a long weekend in front of a computer posting <laughs> endlessly. And just like jeweling constantly. Just jeweling and like 
like taking Adderall, I guess, maybe, <laughs> and, and just posting and posting and posting and posting, because that's what I think our version of like LSD is, yeah. you know, this sort of thing that we all in this generation of, of radicals have kind of like taken to be our, you know, our salvation and like the way that we, you know, connect with something greater, you know, uh-huh. and it's the thing that is the least valuable thing that we do. <laughs> yeah, it, it is, doesn't matter. If at anything, all. it's the most harmful thing that we do. Yeah. It's exactly like drugs in this. <laughs> um, you know, it's it's the thing that just distracts us, keeps us from doing what we need to do, somehow makes us feel like we're doing something, but in reality, we're never doing anything. Right. You're just spinning your wheels. So yeah. But I, I recommend it. Uh but that uh I think we didn't really talk about the movie, but I think we talked about what the movie wanted to say a lot more than I thought we were going to. So I think that's a good way to, to say that's fear and loathing in Las Vegas, everybody. Uh, yeah. Check it out. Cool uh, camera work. Yeah. Very cool. <laughs> lizard puppets. <laughs> cool. Lizard puppets. They're, it's fun. They do like um, different camera styles for every drug. Yeah. You know, like he, he films every drug different, which is interesting. Yeah, they ha- they didn't even have enough money to do some of the the camera tricks they wanted to do to like do adrenochrome or whatever. So they had to right. like, uh, they had to improvise with some very old Aeroflex cameras. It's all very interesting. But uh, I think Terry Gilliam really hit this one out of the park. I like it a lot more than Jeremy. Um, I think it's a, I mean, it is really fucked up and weird to watch now, especially if you know anything about politics and you care about it and you follow it and you know about history and the history of the sixties, um, it's a very scary movie, but it is very fun. Uh, there's a lot of funny stuff in it. Um, yeah. And it's, uh, it's, a, it's, there's nothing really else like it. So I would check it out. Yeah. But anyway, this has been generation loss. Thanks so much for listening to us talk about the movie. <laughs> uh, if you would like to listen to my other show, it's called BP Bledis. Uh, you can follow that at Weed Pod. You can f- uh, listen to Jeremy's other show, uh, Ballin' Out Super. Um, you can follow me at Kinematography. Follow him at Jeremy Thunder. Subscribe to him on YouTube at Jeremy Thunder. Um, you can check us out on Patreon if you'd like to hear about the movie news or other stuff. Uh, patreon.com slash generation loss full extra episode every week yes full extra episode every week um sometimes so long (laughs) (laughs) Uh, and you also get to watch the movie uh the sunday before the episode comes out uh on the discord so check that out otherwise we will see you next time we're all wired into a survival trip now No more of the speed that fueled the 60s. That was the fatal flaw in Tim Leary's trip. He crashed around America selling consciousness expansion without ever giving a thought to the grim meat-hook realities that were lying in wait for all those people who took him seriously. All those pathetically eager acid freaks who thought they could buy peace and understanding three bucks a hit. But their loss and failure is ours too. What Leary took down with him was the central illusion of a whole lifestyle that he helped create. A generation of permanent cripples, veiled seekers, who never understood the essential old mystic fallacy of the acid culture. The desperate assumption that somebody, or at least some force, is tending the light at the end of the tunnel. The truth is found to be.